The verdict is in on the obvious guilt of police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. But the jury is still out on whether Americans have the courage to change policies that exonerate most police officers before or even without trial. During the 15 days of the Chauvin trial, more than 40 black and brown people were killed by police. Will Americans renounce this unrelenting state-sanctioned violence against fellow Americans? Can people of color ever feel safe in our own country? Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, law professor at North Carolina Central University, advocate, activist, and survivor, Urban Joyner. First, the news. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. The verdict is in on Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, but the jury is still out on America. Will we as Americans change policies that exonerate most police officers before they even stand trial? What went right in the Chauvin trial? And where do we go from here? With me on the show today is a man who's been there, legal scholar and law professor at North Carolina Central University, advocate, activist, survivor of siege, and co-host of Public Radio's Legal Eagle Review, Irving Joyner. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. When I heard the verdict in the Chauvin trial, I knew that this show would have to be done because that is one verdict. We are at year 402, okay? And on average in this country, one black or brown person is murdered by police at least once a week. That's where we are now. So that's the context and the precedent, the backdrop for the conversation we're having today. When you heard the verdict, what were your thoughts? Well, because of the uh, quickness, the uh, timeframe that expired during the uh, jurors' uh, deliberation, uh, my first thought that was, was that the, uh, it was a guilty verdict on all counts. Uh, it doesn't take long if you are in agreement. And uh, typically in jury deliberations, uh, it is lengthy when there is at least one person or more that uh, has a contrary view or are not really clear on what the evidence is and what their decision is. And I guess the final one for those uh, jurors who might be resistant to a guilty verdict. And uh, it is usually in those cases that the deliberation is uh, lengthened. And uh, with a two-week trial, uh, you would typically expect them to deliberate at least five or six days uh, if any of those factors are present. So after uh, 10 hours <clears throat> where the uh, jurors on their own uh, deliberated uh, beyond the scheduled times, uh, I, my feeling was that they had pretty much agreed from the outset on the, uh, on the verdict. And, uh, and they should have, uh, because this was an overwhelming case in terms of the evidence. And the uh, prosecutors did uh, an outstanding job of uh, collecting uh, the evidence, uh, presenting uh, the uh, evidence, and preparing their witnesses to, uh, to testify. Uh, the witnesses were outstanding. And a lot of that sharpness and clarity on, a part, on the part of the witnesses 
was due to the presence of overwhelming videotapes. Uh, there was more videotapes in this case than I have seen in my over 40 years of lawyering. Uh, this was a textbook case where every person in this country, and particularly the jurors, were able to see firsthand exactly what happened. And the witnesses were able to review uh, what, uh, what occurred and what they saw. And uh, it put them in a position that uh, the normal absence of recall that witnesses have was absent in this case because they were able to look at the video and they could refresh their recollection and present it and jurors could see as they testified exactly what they had observed. Let me just ask you, isn't it more than just their recall? Because in this case, it seems as though it wasn't just an intellectual exercise of recall, it was emotional damage done to these witnesses. So you get the feeling that this was something they would never forget. Right. But as is present with most of us, as time passes, we forget. No matter how emotional the event is, there are details that we just won't remember. We will remember the larger scope of things. But with, uh, with, with, with every witness, and I've, I've handled uh, many trials uh, where I go back and I look at prior statements that uh, witnesses have made. And in every one of them, I can find differences, which becomes significant when you talk about the credibility of the witness and the prior inconsistent statements that they present in terms of what they said then and then what they say uh, at trial. And the preparation of these witnesses were such that uh, you didn't have uh, the defense attorney harping on prior inconsistent statements to challenge the uh, veracity of the testimony that, uh, that they uh, presented. And the emotions obviously was very important because in this situation, jurors were able to actually see why they were emotional. And it's a different kind of thing when you're emotional and people don't know why mm -hmm. you're emotional. But uh, looking at the video, uh, jurors and even you <laughs> were in a position that you were just horrified. Mm -hmm. at what it was that you were looking at. And then if you had to look at that for nine minutes and 29 seconds, your, your heart and mind became set on exactly what you saw. And it was indelibly imprinted in your mind such that every time you saw it, you re-recorded the same thing and the outrage just grew uh, in your mind. And I think that uh, the prosecutor had the advantage of being able to do that with the uh, high level of uh, videotapes uh, that they were able to present. You've described what was strong about this, this trial and this presentation. I have been hearing that the hero of this day is Keith Ellison. Yes. Because as the state's attorney general, he did take this over from a local prosecutor who was already preparing for a trial that would acquit Derek Chauvin. Meaning, my lay understanding is that the initial police reports did not even mention Chauvin with his knee on anybody's neck. The original police report was a cover-up in itself that referred to a health, <laughs> a health crisis. <laughs> I mean, how clever can you get without talking about what brought that health crisis about, leaving the defense open to speculating and to using a health crisis to really smear the man they had already killed. Take us into that other trial, 
and how it could have happened and how the trial was supposed to happen according to precedent. You mentioned past cases of uh, police misconduct that's been tried in courts around this country, typically resulting in a not guilty verdict. And I I call that really the cases of misprosecution, malprosecutions that have occurred. And uh, it is due mainly to the intimate relationships that exist between police officers and local prosecutors. Uh, They are typically in bed together. They work together on an ongoing basis. They know each other and they give to each other the benefit of the doubt and as much protection as, uh, as possible. So a big, a big part of this case was the fact that uh, Keith Ellis's office uh, took it over. And they are obviously removed from the local politics and the local uh, intimacy that, uh, that existed. And uh, so when I talk about the prosecution, I'm talking about his office and those individuals that uh, worked for him and under his uh, direction and uh, were free of the uh, normal restraints that uh, local uh, prosecutors have in, uh, in these cases. So I certainly agree with you that uh, Keith Ellison and his office uh, were the uh, heroes in the sense of presenting a, uh, uh, a cleaner investigation and uh, passionate prosecution uh, because it was clear that they were convinced and wanted uh, the uh, jurors to be convinced of the uh, guilt of uh, Derek Chauvin uh, in, this, uh, in this particular case. I started by saying here we are at year 402 from the first forced arrival of Africans in, in 1619 to now. And we know that the history of policing in, in America is very tied to upholding the plantation system and the slaveocracy and the national economy that is derived from that. I mean, in the North, maybe they ended slavery earlier, but they were still manufacturing the whips, chains and lashes and guns that perpetuated enslavement and also later segregation. It's it's a funny question to ask because what I'm really thinking about is the defense attorneys who do this work of upholding police misconduct. And it's more than misconduct. This is police brutality, police terror. It's terrorizing people of color. So what do we think of? What do we say when we look at the job that these district attorneys locally, the defense attorneys of police officers, the police unions. What do we say about that? One of the things that we should realize is that there is in this country a growing trend of militarization of policing. Um, And I've said often in in my classes that the federal and state constitutions are designed to protect the rights of individuals who reside uh, in this uh, country and in the individual states. And nowhere in the constitution is there anything that establishes or protects the creation of police departments or police officers. They are not, as an entity, protected by the Constitution. Now, as individuals, of course, they are. But as a policing agency, there is nothing in the Constitution, both the federal Constitution and the state Constitution, that says anything about police uh, departments. They are creation of the state, of the uh, General Assembly. But they are given more power in these uh, enactments than uh, any other governmental official because they deal with day-to-day activities of people and they have the power authorized by law to be the enforcers, 
judges, the jury, and the executioners. And the laws are set up in such a way that unless their actions are grossly uh, different than what is the established pattern in policing, their conduct is going to be upheld. And that's why the uh, defense attorney argued this notion of the reasonable police officer and what the reasonable police officer in this position would do. In all probability, and I've not checked his background, but he's probably a former police officer. And uh, their role is to expand the reach and power of police officers. Uh, it becomes a kind of a Gestapo force or effort to uh, establish the uh, power and entrench that power in this, uh, these agencies and with these particular agents. And that's why you have this blue shield that operates all over the country. And you have rules of procedures that are virtually the same in every city, state, and hamlet uh, in this country because they have organized. And they've organized for the purpose of entrenching themselves into the governmental process so that they determine what the laws are. And you see that they are very active in every political campaign, in uh, your local community, uh, in the state, and uh, in Congress. They have a powerful voice because they come together to protect themselves, their position, and each other. And that's why the Blue Shield is so enforced throughout the country, because you don't break ranks. Because if you break ranks, you tear up the union. And uh, so one of the big things in this case was that police officers broke rank and came out against what Derek Chauvin had done. So the thinking of the defense attorneys in cases like this is that we're going to uphold the Blue Shield and we're going to uphold our efforts to entrench ourselves in the operation of police affairs. And if you look at it on another level, you'll find that these right wing conservative and Klan-like organizations all over the country have as its members, members of the police and the military. Uh, and they recruit members of the military to join. And you find as a result of that, this increasing or enhanced militarization of policing. Because what we have today is nothing like what we had in 1960 or even during Jim Crow. Uh, policing was different even during Jim Crow. Today, it's really a offshoot of uh, being in Fallujah or being in Afghanistan. Because when you look at what the police officers are doing, it is exactly what uh, you see in warlike situations yes. all over the world uh, today. So it is not a protect and serve. It's not a protect and serve of citizens. It's a protect of the law enforcement agencies that uh, exist all over the place. But it is for some citizens, it, isn't it? I mean, it seems as though it's also protecting and preserving the status quo. It's protecting and preserving white supremacy. Let me just say, I'm, I'm speaking from the perspective of an African-American. And uh, when I talk about protect and serve, I'm talking about protecting and serving us. Uh, exactly. Not, yeah. And of course, the point that you, you're raising, it is a, an effort to keep us in line. Uh, and that's what policing is all about. If you go back to, to the thesis uh, that, uh, that you presented as to the origin of uh, policing in this country, it was always designed to keep us uh, in line. And that's why we always uh, the uh, evil villain. Uh, no matter how large or small uh, we are, uh, our size and our color demonizes us in the eyes of those officers and creates uh, automatically a fear on their part of what it is that we can do, that subhuman strength that uh, we're able to uh, gather to overcome anything that they do, even though we're being held down by four people all of a sudden we're going to become Superman or the Black Panther. 
uh, able to vanquish, uh, no, no, no matter what the uh, uh, forces are that, uh, that are against us. So uh, I'm with you on that. It's just about life experience coupled with our work and training, you in law, with law based on precedent, you as an African-American man whose life experience must lead you to question not just behavior, but the activism on the part of openly racist people that becomes policy. And then that becomes ingrained in legal decisions, whether de facto or de jure. So when we come back, more with our guest, Irving Joyner, professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, legal scholar, legal eagle, and our guest today. More after the break. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Irving L. Joyner. He is a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. He's also an experienced legal mind and legal activist. He is co-host of the Legal Eagle Review with Professor April Dawson that airs on public radio, WNCU 90. Point seven FM in North Carolina. Tell us something about you and your background. Where were you born? I was born in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Wow. Uh, my mother uh, was a part of the uh, great uh, black migration. Yes. From uh, the South into the North. And uh, she, uh, like many young people during those days. When she uh, graduated from high school, uh, she was given a ticket to get out of town. And uh, the next day she left to join uh, her other uh, sisters and uh, a brother uh, in uh, New York where they had the opportunities uh, to obtain uh, decent jobs and housing, things that were not available uh, to her had she stayed in uh, North Carolina at the time. And uh, so I was born uh, there. Uh, when I got to uh, school age, uh, I was sent back to North Carolina with my uh, grandparents uh, to, uh, to go to school. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, early school years were here uh, in, uh, in North Carolina in a uh, segregated uh, school system uh, in the uh, state, which was the best thing that happened to me in my life, uh, in those uh, segregated uh, black schools with uh, uh, African-American personnel, uh, teachers, administrators, uh, other people who looked like me, uh, who uh, were uh, living under the same conditions as me, we learned uh, together. And uh, the uh, teachers there pre pre uh, prepared us to deal with the uh, racism that we were going to encounter later on uh, in life. And they did an outstanding job uh, of that. So happily, I'm a uh, product of the uh, segregated African-American school where the teachers were family members, uh, members from the community, members from the church, and uh, they knew you, your family, uh, up and down. In fact, my uh, first grade teacher was my mother's first grade teacher. And uh, so there was an intimate relationship that we had and they were fighting for the betterment of all of the uh, children there in the community. And we, had, uh, we were able to learn without having to deal with the racism that infects our school system uh, today or after uh, desegregation uh, occurred. So that was uh, my, uh, my background. And you're talking to a person who was part at eight years old, pioneered Northern schools desegregation. Mm -hmm. So you said that those segregated schools, and I want the audience to understand, no, we are not elevating the terror 
that surrounds what enforces segregation. We're talking about how people come together under the yoke of segregation to preserve, protect, and defend their own lives. That's That's what we're talking about here. So let me ask you, you mentioned that those teachers, because they were part of the community, prepared you, not only educationally, but emotionally, intellectually, for life. What was a lesson that you got there that you would not have gotten elsewhere? Early on, we understood who we were, and we understood our history and background. We knew of the uh, pioneers of African Americans all over the uh, country. Uh, And while that information wasn't in the textbook, it was on the wall. Uh, Teachers brought it in and uh, they gave to you a sense of value and a sense of worth that no matter what surrounded you at the time, you were in a uh, cocoon of protection. And during that time, you were going to be able to learn those things that you needed to survive once you got out into the, uh, the elements. And a part of that was confidence, uh, not only the knowledge, but the confidence to, uh, to use it and to be able to exhibit uh, your skills and test them out, uh, being able to stand up in front of a classroom and talk, uh, being able to go into a lab and research. Uh, being able to get up on a stage and perform, uh, whatever it was that you were given free range to express yourself and to show yourself that you were capable of doing what anyone else could do. Now, I left North Carolina in the uh, 10th grade. Uh, I was part of uh, the basketball team, and uh, we were outstanding uh, in our own rights. But I, I left North Carolina in the 10th grade. And uh, went to uh, to a school in uh, in Brooklyn, really on the Brooklyn Queens line. And uh, when I walked into the classroom, I was thinking that uh, I was going to be behind. But when I sat down and watched what was going on in the classroom, I said, "My God, I'm more advanced than uh, these students here are." So I was immediately placed into a college track program where a lot of my friends were being shuttled off into uh, general uh, programs. Uh, and, uh, but I was prepared for what I had to deal with to be an honor student uh, in, uh, in New York. And I, and I was. And so I, I had the foundation necessary to survive because of the foresight of those uh, teachers. Uh, that I had who were intent on preparing me and others like me uh, in that school to uh, to survive the uh, mean world that was on the uh, on the outside. And that was before Brown versus Board of Education. Uh, And uh, so uh, I'm not trying to uh, age myself or anything, but uh, I was privileged to be where I was at the time that I was there. And I always thank my mother. Uh, for having the foresight to send me down to be raised by my grandparents and having grandparents who were willing uh, and uh, caring uh, enough uh, to uh, allow me to become their child. Uh, And uh, they uh, provided me with the discipline and guidance that I needed and the protection around me so that I didn't have to encounter the worst of the Jim Crow world that was around me the worst of the Jim Crow world that was around you. Um, You are, as am I, dark-skinned. I gather that you are tall. And we're here talking about the verdict in the Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. And in so many of those police situations, they always refer to the person as being big. They don't say that he's dark skinned, but he most of the time is. And 
They also alluded in this specific trial, I noticed the racism being infused into that jury. They were reminded of what they needed to do from a racial point of view the minute it started by them constantly referring not to George Floyd driving a car or being in a car, but they kept referring to the Mercedes Benz which was another way of saying he was someone who was uppity, whether he was or he was not, but by imagery, he was outside his assigned caste. When you left in 10th grade, what were your grandparents and mother protecting you from as a tall, dark-skinned Black boy? in North Carolina? From the uh, stigma, uh, the uh, stereotypes, uh, the uh, uh, perceptions created in the minds of those whites who were around me, uh, and uh, the notion of superiority that they had, that they could have their way with people uh, like us. Uh, let me just uh, say, when I was seven years old, I was second grade in, uh, in North Carolina in school. My cousin was killed by a uh, white police officer as he walked home from uh, choir practice at uh, our church. And my grandfather, and I remember this so vividly, my grandfather led a campaign uh, in that uh, town of organizing uh, uh, our neighbors to uh, seek uh, governmental intervention uh, to get this uh, officer arrested or an investigation to occur. And fortunately, uh, my uh, uncle was a uh, mortician next town over and uh, was called to pick up the body of my cousin. And when he did, he went over and took pictures of the, uh, the, the, the location uh, where this shooting occurred. And uh, it was an attempt to preserve uh, evidence that could be used because we knew that the local prosecutor did not have an inclination to do anything uh, about it. And uh, we, we fought it and we used the pictures that my uncle had uh, taken to show what had occurred uh, in, uh, in this case where my, uh, my cousin was shot. Uh, he was dragged across the street uh, and placed uh, under the uh, window of a uh, house that an old elderly white woman uh, resided in and the screen was then cut. Uh, but he was able to show pictures of where the body came from and how it was drug across the street because you could see the imprints in the grass where the body was uh, drugged from. And uh, even had a uh, African-American who was what was called at that time the garbage man uh, called from his home to cover up the blood with dirt where the uh, actual shooting uh, occurred. And we were able to get statements from him about uh, what, uh, had, uh, what had occurred. So at an early age, I was very familiar with the dangers that I was in and that uh, just being an African-American, uh, and I'm 6'2", uh, and uh, that you were deemed to be dangerous and that you could be killed and no one other than your family would put up a protest and there was no intervention by any law enforcement uh, agency to uh, correct or to discipline or call accountable uh, these uh, police officers and others, many of whom were part of the Klan for what they were doing. So, so I, that, that was something that, that burned into my mind early <laughs> uh, growing up. And, uh, and I've lived with that memory forever. So uh, early on, I was a civil rights activist. Uh, in the uh, early uh, 60s and uh, always led demonstrations and marches dealing with police misconduct and uh, police uh, uh, brutality uh, all over the country. Uh, so I've been uh, enmeshed in uh, civil rights activities all my life, uh, which drove me to become a lawyer 
and to uh, be in the position uh, that I'm in uh, now uh, because I know what can happen. And I've seen it uh, before and I've fought against it uh, before. And I've seen uh, just how uh, insidious uh, this, uh, this effort is. And there is no big difference between the old Jim Crow and the uh, new Jim Crow uh, that uh, we are dealing with here today. They just change sheets for suits. Oh, um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just taken by your story because as when these, we have these conversations, for some people, the first response is to say, and truthfully, I am sorry for the experience that you had and are relating, but I'm also very much in simpatico because when you say that, then this catalog, this inventory of like experiences starts coming up in my mind of similar situations, including my own life of being threatened by a police siege, you know, while I was covering as a journalist. I lived through some things as, as a child, but as a journalist covering a voting rights protest in Cairo, Illinois, mm. that found me being targeted by the police because they did not want it covered, what they had been doing. So the differences between Black people's experience of America when we talk about what police represent to us, as opposed to the white experience of policing in America, when they think of what policing represents for them is so amazingly diametrically opposed. How do you deal with that? Let, let me start out by saying that I'm not sorry for my background and experience. I believe that the Lord placed me where he did for a reason and surrounded me with the people whom I was surrounded with for a reason. And the experiences that I had uh, were uh, there for a reason. And that reason was to prepare me to be where I am today, that I can uh, seek to uh, reach out and help other people. And, and, and my role is kind of twofold, uh, I think, with respect to other African-Americans to help alert them and educate them to what's going on, uh, what has happened and the background and the impetus for all of the things that we are encountering. And there are significant differences uh, between what I experienced growing up and where people are today. Uh, for them, it's the worst thing they've ever, they've ever experienced in their life. Uh, for me, it's not necessarily the worst, it's just a continuation of the, uh, of the bad. Uh, so I, I, I understand that. For, for whites, uh, I want to try to help them uh, to understand what that experience has been and how they ought to be responding and what it is that they need to do, particularly as we try to promote uh, this notion of a uh, democracy and a democratic society in which uh, we live and share resources that the Lord has provided to us uh, and wants us to be able to share uh, as, uh, as equals uh, within uh, this uh, society. So, and being at the law school, I'm in a position to deal with both sides because we have a large number of African-American students who are preparing to become lawyers. And I want them to go out armed with the knowledge that, you know, your, your day will come. You're going to be called upon. You, you're safe right now. Uh, but you, you're, you will get that tap on your back uh, where history will say it is your time to stand up and you need to be prepared to stand up. And then uh, also I have uh, whites in my classes where I try to help them to understand like this is what the history is. 
This is what the theoretical framework is for this country and what equal protection means uh, and how it ought to be applied. Now it is up to you uh, to decide what it is and how it is that you are going to respond uh, to this in terms of making this world a better place for, uh, for all of us. So I, I see that as a kind of dual uh, role that I have uh, placed in front of me and I try to live up to, uh, to that challenge. When we come back, more with our guest, Irving Joyner, a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. More here on the Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with our guest, Irving L. Joyner. He is a professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, an experienced legal activist. He is co-host of the Legal Eagle Review with Professor April Dawson that airs on public radio, WNCU. Irving, we're talking about things that are going on now that are evoking too much history and actually the frightening part of that history is that we see how it is still being played out which means that this is the plan for our future which cannot be so i'd like you to address okay the chauvin verdict is in but there are so many other verdicts that we have to get to. Where do we go from here? Well, I, I think that we have to continue to push. I think that we need to continue our efforts to uh, reform and change uh, the concept of uh, policing uh, within our community and the powers that police officers have, particularly to use fatal force. Uh, against people and the many circumstances uh, that uh, that has been uh, sanctioned uh, by our uh, system and this notion of qualified immunity uh, that uh, police officers uh, enjoy. At the same time, I think that we have a, uh, a, a, a heavy burden to educate our people on how to avoid uh, these uh, situations. Uh, how to uh, react uh, when we're stopped by police officers to understand what, uh, what, uh, what our rights are in those uh, confrontations and then how to exercise uh, those rights without uh, escalating uh, the heat and the passion and giving uh, to officers an excuse uh, to, uh, to do as they uh, wish to do and also to uh, uh, encourage uh, our people to utilize the uh, cell phones that they have uh, to record every interaction that they see with, uh, with the police. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in the power of the, uh, of the tape and the power of uh, the recordings uh, that can be used at a later point because you just never know when a seemingly innocuous encounter will turn uh, deadly. Uh, so that if we take a few minutes and just stop, as the uh, young girl did uh, on her way to the uh, store uh, to uh, buy donuts, uh, she stopped and she recorded what it was that uh, she was uh, observing. And that was the, uh, the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back uh, there because it presented the first instance of uh, a different narrative of what had occurred with uh, George Floyd uh, and call for a deeper uh, investigation. So, so I, I, I see uh, those things as being important as we move forward. May I just also ask you about that? Because I've heard that one of the really unique things about her video was that it was also uninterrupted so that the defense of Chauvin did not have the opportunity to plant. They tried to plant, well, you didn't see what happened before, 
but we have seen video of what was happening before right. when when George Floyd sat on the ground, his hands behind his back. But that's not what they do. They were implanting in their minds that this terrible man was doing things to them. But that had her video been interrupted, they would have used that as a wedge to plant in people's minds what they did not see in between different right. points. Right. And, and very important because that would then cast doubt on the uh, validity of uh, what had uh, occurred and then allow for uh, another narrative to be inserted into the, uh, into the uh, series of events. So that was, uh, whether it was uh, her intentions uh, to do it uh, that way or not, but it was certainly uh, uh, fortunate that, uh, that she stood there and that she recorded every minute of uh, what was uh, what was going on, and then that there was other tape there to confirm everything it was that she uh, recorded. Uh, so I think it's important that our people understand because just about everybody, their mama uh, has a uh, cell phone uh, today, and we we record everything that we see, uh, even the dinners that we uh, uh, have at the restaurant. Uh, now, uh, so that we can play a vital service on behalf of victims when we encounter that they have this kind of confrontation with police officers by recording it and making that available uh, to, uh, to investigators who are involved in it. Now, we have the case of the serviceman in uniform, the lieutenant in uniform, who was stopped and they then rush him, guns drawn over something on a license plate, who, who knows, whatever, because you really can't believe what they say in terms of why they stopped him. Um, but they stop him. He drives to a lighted area, which is which was critical in, in this case. And then they pepper spray him. And you can see them rush at him, guns drawn. So the first go-to instinct is bring out your gun and kill this black person. That's the first, that's the real trigger that seems to be going on here. So I'm gonna ask you in this little time that we have left, that case, which I gather is more of a civil case than a, than a criminal case because the Lieutenant has filed suit. What that and what other cases right now are on your radar that we have to look to? Because it isn't just the legal structure that ultimately prevailed. It was the people who took to the streets and never let up right. in terms of raising the name of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, Elijah McClain, and unfortunately, too many to mention in this year since George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin. So what's on our radar now? Well, uh, too much is on our radar uh, right now. Uh, I note that uh, in the uh, 15 days of the uh, George uh, Floyd uh, testimony, uh, that there were over 40 people killed by, uh, by the uh, by the police uh, all over the country. Just yesterday, uh, we had a uh, killing in uh, Elizabeth City, North Carolina, of an African-American man uh, who was driving away from a, a search situation, wasn't escaping, uh, no weapons uh, involved, uh, but was killed by a sheriff deputy uh, in, uh, in the northeastern part of the, uh, of the state. And then you had the situation with the 15-year-old in uh, Columbus, uh, Ohio, and then the 13-year-old in uh, Chicago, uh, Illinois, uh, and you mentioned the uh, officer uh, uh, in uh, in Virginia uh, that was uh, stopped uh, by officers. So this is an ongoing issue that we are dealing with, and uh, so training of advocates uh, to uh, be present to aid in the litigation of these cases. Uh, the training of people to further investigate uh, these uh, cases, 
and also efforts to empower community people who want to speak out, uh, who want to uh, engage in protests and demonstrations. Uh, to uh, exhibit their outrage about what is uh, going on, helping them to uh, safely organize uh, these uh, activities uh, around the, uh, the, the, the country that does not result in uh, confrontations with, uh, with police officers. So the plate is full. Uh, in fact, it's more than a plate, it's the whole platter uh, that's full of things that, uh, that we have to do. And uh, so my job is to plug in wherever I can uh, to help in that educational process, that organizing process, and that mobilization uh, process uh, to keep the heat, uh, to keep our feet on the, on, on the pedal uh, so that uh, we see that there are some positive changes that will occur that will offer protections to people down the road. Irving Joyner, thank you so much for being here today on the show. I've appreciated it. Um, I've learned from it. I hope our audience, I know our audience has as well. We thank you for your, for your work and your witness. Thank you for having me. At this note, Professor Joyner posed the question of Chauvin defense attorney Eric Nelson's being a former police officer. While there is no indication that Nelson was, he is a member of the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association. My thanks to Irving Joyner and to you for joining us on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, links to a New York Times article confirming the extraordinary number of police killings during the Chauvin trial and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. Hashtag staying home for COVID-19. I'm Janice Adams in cooperation with WGFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.